What is up, guys? Today's interview is with an architect named Randall Comfort. Randall is a very interesting, eccentric guy, and I've known him for years. In fact, I know him so well that we spend at least once a week together trying to find new ways to think about the way the world works around us. Randall is one of my closest friends, and I invited him over here to come talk about the ideas that he has shared with me over time. Some of these ideas have actually changed the way that I feel when I'm in a room or when I walk up to a building that I've never seen before. It's been fascinating to me to learn about how you can think about space and how space puts you as an individual in a different context, and it can make you feel things that you didn't know were possible. So I hope you enjoy this interview. Randall is a fascinating and interesting guy. Our conversation meandered all over the place, but I think you'll pull things out of this that you'll be able to apply in your life. Enjoy. I had lived basically my entire life not really having an appreciation that someone built the buildings around me. And I say this in the context of I work construction all through high school. So I knew that somebody built it, but I never really thought about who dreamed it up and the space that, that you were creating, that somebody had to envision that before you got there. And it wasn't until I was, I don't know, maybe in my 30s when I had met you and you pointed out something as simple as a parking garage that really changed um, not just my view of architecture, but really was one of the very first glimpses that I had of being a conscious being. And I think that that is probably the power of knowing and and being able to talk with an architect. And so maybe to give an example, you had pointed out to me that there is a parking garage in this small suburb of St. Louis. And um, instead of just putting this thing up there where people would park their vehicles, uh, they had created a sculpture that allowed you to see the wind and that the building itself was in a way somewhat breathing. It, it, it was interacting with the environment mm -hmm. so much so that the building changed depending on the weather. And I remember hearing you tell me that, thinking about it, and then going there and staring at a parking garage with a sense of awe. And that's when I looked back and thought, oh my God, Randall Comfort lives like that all the time. So I thought you would be a very fun person to have on the podcast to talk with about how do buildings get built? How should we think about them? And how do they place us as a conscious being in the universe? Well, thanks for having me. Glad to be here. Glad to have you. So Randall, you're an architect now. Yes. And you do everything from commercial buildings to homes. Yes. Mm -hmm. But you didn't start out this way. Did you know an architect or did you go to college and somebody pointed you in this direction? How in the world did you ever even find out that there was a field called architecture? I was, I was told since I was a, a young child that what I like to do, that the things that I like to do would make me an architect. Like I used to love to play with, I, my parents got me a set of, of plastic bricks, not Legos, but they were similar, but they, they were plastic bricks and they hadn't came with instructions on how to build, like make a little house or a little building. And so I took a look at that, threw it aside, so that's not what I want to do. And I started making things that I wanted to make, you know, things that were going on inside my head. I said, I want to make a little space here that does this, or is for that, maybe a bridge and it has a tower and a this and a fort and things like that. And I would be making these things. My mom and dad would come by and look and say, whoa, 
I think he's going to be an architect. And so I just, oh, I looked up and I thought, oh, okay, yeah, whatever you say. And then as I got into school and uh, in high school, I, I noticed I liked uh, like mechanical drafting. I really liked to do that too. And you needed to be able to do that at that point in time. And mechanical in drafting, to, what is that? That's where you have a, a drawing board and a T-square, a device called a T-square. And it runs up and down the side, so it's always parallel to the top and bottom of the board. And you tape a piece of paper on there. And then you can start drawing with this with this T-square. You run it up and down and draw lines. And if you want to draw a line in the other direction, the 90 degrees, you have what are called triangles. And they were there was a 45-degree triangle and a 30-60 triangle. And you could put those on there and draw lines up and down on the sheet. And so I, I was really good at that. You know, the teachers would tell me, you, you, you have a really good, good talent for that. And so I thought, well, okay, well, that's fine. And uh, so uh, I started taking classes in high school and things, knowing that I was going to go to KU and and uh, study architecture in the architecture school, so it was just never really, really even an issue for me. No one, no one had to tell me, uh, or, or, and and the other thing was, I I noticed from when I was a young child that uh, I seemed to be noticing things that other people weren't about the built environment. Like that, like I remember that when we would go to my grandma's house, she lived in a big old Victorian house in a little town in, in rural Kansas, a little town, Minneapolis, Kansas. And we go there and I would feel this sense of elation. I mean, of course, to see my grandma, but more, even more to see her house. When I go to her house, I thought, this is the coolest house in the world. And I compared it to my house where I lived, and it was bland. And it, 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 The thing that was cool about her house, so you, you walk up a set of stairs, and there's a little window seat there with a window off the side, and then you go up another set of stairs. And I used to sit on that window seat. This is a great space. This is a great place to just sit and relax and enjoy things. And there was another, other spaces like under the stair, you know, like the Harry Potter space, you know, under the stair. And so I would notice these things, and I noticed, uh, well, nobody else seems to be paying attention. My brother and sister, they didn't seem to be paying attention. My mom and dad, they didn't seem to care. So I thought, hmm, I'm, I'm a little different in that regard. I didn't really find it to be a problem, but I did notice that wherever I went, I would be looking around and thinking about how I felt in there and what was going on, what was attractive, what was good, what was bad, what, what did I like, what did I not like. And so uh, that's how I came to, came to be an architect. So the interesting thing about being an architect is that you have to have a subjective idea of how people will experience the room when what you're describing is most people don't even know what they like or don't like, or even if they do or don't like the space that they're in. So how in the world do you do, you do this? They, they don't really, I think they know whether they like it or don't like it, but they don't give it much thought at all. They don't really, they don't really focus on it too much. So when I work with people, they tend to tell me, I, I, I don't really, it, I don't, it doesn't work well when people come and say, I want to do a, I want to do a new house or I want to do an addition to my house. Look, I've got a whole bunch of pictures here of what I want to do. Now, most people think, well, that's great because then you'll know just what they want to do, right? But it's a problem because those pictures, they found something in there. And I don't know what. There's, and, and sometimes I can pin it down, but there's something in there that they like, but the rest of it they don't. You know, they don't care about it. They just saw something in that photo. Here's another photo. It does... And for me, it's a problem because I look at one photo and the other photo, and they don't look anything alike to me. Those, this, the sense of being in this space would be nothing like being in this space. And so then you've got to think, well, how do I get to the bottom of this? And the way I found to get to the bottom of it is to ask them about themselves. 
I need to understand what they're all about. What do what do they think about? Like, what do you do? Uh, I say when you come home when you, when you come home to this new house and uh, walk up to the front door. What do you are, are you going to walk in the front door? You going to come in the back door? If you come in the back door, do you want it to be as important as the front door, or is it? Or do you think well, it's just me? It doesn't have to be important at all. But to me, if it were my house, I think wherever I'm going in my house, I want it to be pretty nice because to me, it's important. It's my house. I can imagine that as you're talking with people, that's got to feel a little bit for for many. That that would be like um, like a stutter step. Like, yeah, 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 I know this is the way that I... Re- but I showed you that I want this fireplace. And so it you... It is, though. They're a little confused sometimes. They think they think that they got everything just right. You know, I've got all these pictures and, and... and But they usually don't mind. If I start telling... Sometimes people even have diagrams, like floor plans that they've laid out what they want to do. And I look at it and say... And I think, hmm... And then I ask the questions that I'm talking about and find out that some of the things they didn't address with their, with their drawing. And by the time the conversation's done, I say, well, I can uh, take this away and from our conversation, your drawing here, your pictures and things, I can come away with, I can come back to you with the design. But um, I'm already seeing ways to do it that are different than what you're what you've shown here on planet and, and they may be better they may not be i don't i think they probably will be but maybe they won't would you want me to do that one too or you just want to do want me to do this one and they say well no I, i'd like to see what you've got in mind too and <laughs> that's like i've got a mystery box here and, I, <laughs> it is like and if you're yeah. willing you can look you inside can look of it inside. and so they uh they, they say, sure. And then when I come back and show them, I, I always show them their design first. Here you go. See, it was just like this. You said you wanted to go here. You wanted to come in here and do this. But here's another alternative. See the way you can now do this? It's, remember you said you wanted to do this and have this happen? And they go, oh, yeah, and that would be a lot better than the way I had it. And so almost invariably, we end up going with, with so the one that the, I've come up the, with. Because they don't have the ability to, they're not architects, you know. Yeah, I mean, I didn't People even know. People think it's easy to draw floor plans, and it is. But floor plans with the with meaning that will represent a physical reality—that's another matter. So, um, you know, you went from I'm a good draftsman and I can put together blocks to um, now talking about how you get into the the mind of somebody that has decided they want an architect. Did you learn this skill in school? Is that what they teach you in architecture school? No, they really don't. They do, they do have, a, it's a process called programming, and some schools uh, emphasize it more than other schools. The school I went to, they didn't particularly emphasize the programming aspect. You, know, they, you ask questions, find out what the client wants, and you respond to that. So, but, but, there's a, but I found, after doing it for a long time, that there's a certain skill to what questions you ask, and, what, and you have to be aware of what the answers are because you want to build on the answers you know so someone will say something that makes you think oh well then and then you ask another question and you just keep building on that and then i come away with a with a pretty good understanding of of how the people want to use their how what they think is important uh, how they're going to use it things like that when when most people start a conversation with an architect what is it what is it that they are anticipating you are going to be like? And what's the delta between what they expect an architect to be and Randall? I, you know, I don't know because I only have, I can only state my experiences, you know. So I don't know what, although I will tell you a couple things. So I've, I've gone to some clients and they're really grilling me and they, they want to know this, they want to know that. And they're kind of looking at me with kind of not that friendly of a look and, 
uh, finally, after I've answered the question, then they start to get a little friendly. They say, well, you know, you're the second architect that would be involved in this project. The first one we had to fire. <laughs> Red flags go off. You know, I think, whoa, do I want to work with these people? You know, if they fired their architect, are they, are they a problem or what's going on? So I have to get to the bottom of that one. And I, so the first question, obviously, is why? What happened? And usually they say, well, we told them we wanted a square room and he came back with a circular room and told us it was better we didn't want a circular we, we wanted our square room and he and he, and he gets in well yeah I, yeah I can do that but this circular one it's really really good so that's when I realized that I need to do this technique where I say yeah yours is a nice plan but I could do another one you want me to show you that one too then it's their decision it wasn't my decision I didn't come in and say your idea is bad here's mine it's much better so I think People really respond well when you listen to what they have to say. Architects that don't listen to what they have to say, I think, have more problems working with clients. And so, what would be what would be maybe an example of that? Like where a person thought they had an idea, and then you said, "Well, why don't we think about this?" Well, here's another one that I always check. Like, let's say someone wants to do a two-story house. The first thing I do, and they have two floor plans, obviously one for each floor. So I look at the floor plan. The first thing you get to check is, "Well, where's the stair?" Because it seems obvious, but the stair has to be in the same place on both plans. Oh, they're not always. They're not always. <laughs> <laughs> and then I know they really have no clue as to spatial allocation and the way things work. And that's when I have to say, well, I'm going to have to tidy this up a little bit because, and they, usually it's a big problem because if the stairs don't, aren't in the same place, then when you start moving things around, it's, it's, it's a domino effect. Well, if you move that over, well, then where does that thing go? It goes over here, but it doesn't really want to be where it wanted to be where it was. Then you have to move. Well, in order to fix that, you got to move this, and you end up moving the whole thing around. That's why a lot of times if I, if I do run across a client that has floor plans that are pretty well developed like that with stairs in the wrong place, I, I figure out a way not to do the project because the people will not. And after I've interviewed them, they, I found that they're just not, they're, they're not, they think, their way is the right way, even when it's not. You know, there was an interesting experience that you and I figured out. We were with a couple of our friends, and um, we did a thought experiment. And the thought experiment oh, yeah. was, all right, um, let's pick a room that we're, we all know, and I want you to draw it, and you to draw it. And we kind of all talked about how would you go about doing this. And, and we had a dry erase board, and we were drawing it out. Yeah. And we quickly figured out that uh, three out of the four of you guys all did it from the top. You could view the room you, uh, and the, the space that you were in and be able to place your mental mind above. The place you're projecting from to experience it. That's right. right. Yes. And so your experience it's could be remote. from above. It's removed. And, um, and I uh, drew the room almost as though I had a flashlight and I was walking in the front door and I could point my attention at things. And the fidelity that I have of what was in the room is really, really high, but the dimensions look like, you know, totally off. And the relation to the next room were all a little off. Oh yeah, that's right. They were all a little, they were a little off. So I could tell that it was there, but I would have to like see it this way and then be like, okay, so Mm -hmm. I'll put this over here. Um, and I have to watch that with clients, too, because I tend to think about architecture from anywhere. You know, in other words, like I can imagine where we're at now from the point of where I was when I first arrived here and had the experience of getting all the way down through here. I could, I can imagine what it would be like if I were, you know, 40 feet in the air looking down at the floor plan, which is what I do with architecture and what you can do with computer science 
our computer technology now with, with architecture, I can build a, a virtual model of a building and then I can look at it any way I want to. I can look at it from underneath, on top, split it apart, look at the halves, you know, put it. And did you always have that? Yes. I always had that ability to visualize things from somewhere else. Yes. Do all architects thing. have that? I think they probably do. I, I can't imagine that they wouldn't. But I do have to be careful with clients because sometimes I make a presentation and I show them uh, various views and things, and I think that they can understand things like this too. But they say, well, do you have any views where it's just like walking along like you really would do? Yeah, that's the only one that would matter to me. Yeah, and that, and then I find you're not, you're not alone. A lot, there are a lot of people like that. And so... Um, you know, I think that the the interesting component of having that view of the world, it also has made it much more difficult for me to be able to place myself in the larger yes, order. Yes, I can see that. I was going to say that if you if you look at it like that, you miss the you you miss somewhat perhaps things about the architecture that are important. That unless you stood back and looked at it like this, you wouldn't grasp. Like there are like cathedrals in in Europe, uh, Romanesque cathedrals and things in Rome, where if you go in and start walking around, you don't appreciate the relationship of the things. If if you saw a floor plan of it, you can say, oh, so the transept is crossed here, and this and this, the dome is on the center of that space, and things like that, that you wouldn't really pick up. You just appreciate it as a nice space, and that and that's enough for most people, but. For an architect, for me, it, I like to understand the space. I like, I like to, to me, it gives me great satisfaction to understand how all this pulls together and relate, how the parts relate to each other. Do you then really enjoy the experience of traveling to go be oh, in yes. the space? Yeah. So where would be oh, yeah. some of your favorite places to go? Well, uh, Europe was great. There's a lot of interesting things to see there, but... Some of the best spaces or places to, to go and see things are, are you, you wouldn't consider them as all that important. You know, like uh, say, uh, well, you and I visited the, the Pulitzer Foundation building here in St. Louis. I really, that's one of my favorite buildings in St. Louis. It's not very big and it's not, uh, there's not much to it. It's pretty straightforward, but the way it all relates, the parts that are there are really, really powerful. So how do they relate? What do you mean? Well, when, you're, when you come into the space, and, that, and that's the other thing that you have to appreciate that, that helps in appreciating architecture is an awareness of you have to keep track of things. Most people keep track of where they're at. You have to pretty much where you're going. So you're looking a little bit ahead, a little bit where you're at, a little bit ahead, right? But if you can keep track of where you've been as well, in other words, if you're moving along, you're keeping all of this in your mind, right? So you can say, oh, I just passed through those doors and you came through and here's, wow, this is a great space. And then you turn around and think, oh, yeah, because that's because the doors opened up and now they're and now we open into this big space. But so before you got there, there was a nice interlude before you got there that was really nice. But you didn't know it yet because you hadn't been to the bigger space. And uh, at the Pulitzer, there are places where you can look ahead and see a, a vista, what I call a vista. When you look ahead at the end of what you're looking at, there's something there. And it directs your attention around the corner where there's another cool space that you you're, it teases you a little bit. I think that's a fun thing to have happen in architecture where space where spaces or components of a building kind of tease you a little bit into thinking, hey, something's coming up. I wonder what it is. And you and you get there and it's right. It, it, 
it was, you know, it wasn't a tease. It was the real thing. It's, it's, it's a especially cool. Meaning that, like, you can tell that the room is really going to open up in there. I, I imagine, or like, something's going to happen. Okay. It's not always that. That's just an example. Like looking okay. from the end of a hallway at a gymnasium where you can see the doors and you know that it's going to get big there, but you don't know exactly what you it's going to what. be. Yeah, that's that's kind of fun. Yeah. You know, I would think that one of the difficult parts about your work is that it is both visual, but in order for somebody to be able to convey the visual experience, they also have to have a very strong command of the English language, the ability to articulate why something yes. is the way that it is. Yes, the, the more descriptive a person is, the better they client they are, because, and, and the more in touch with themselves they are. A lot of people aren't in very, well, very in touch with themselves, and so they don't really know the answers to the questions like when you eat breakfast what kind of a space would you like to well i don't know i just sit and eat my breakfast and look at my phone I'm, what do i care what the space looks like you know those are tough clients to work for because anything anything works you know they're, they're, if you showed them one thing that was bad one thing's good they would know the difference that to them and and, it, and, I, and i think we sh i should be careful here when i say something's good something's bad architecture's good architecture's bad it's really subjective obviously so but but the game is to, or the object of the game is to try to figure out subjectively why it's good if there's reasons for why something's good why something's bad then i think it's legitimate but if it's just say but i don't i don't like clients that will say well here here's my design what do you think oh i like it why i don't know i just do whereas somebody says i like it because i told you that i wanted this thing to happen in my life and and i didn't think it would be possible you made it so that that that'll be a great thing that's going to happen there that's just what i wanted to have like a person that says i really i always eat my breakfast and i want to be able to look out and see the birds yeah or if they say i want to sit in a room where i don't even perceive that there are walls there i want it to just be like i'm sitting out in nature you've had people say that no but if they did <laughs> that would be a good one wouldn't it okay. i know how to do that if they didn't want to do it i could do a room like that so that's interesting so you're actually uh intrigued by the idea of having uh, clients that are going to give you a challenge because it's something oh, they care yeah. about, but they don't know the answer to. Yes, exactly. That's exactly it. They don't know the answer to it. And that's why it's a challenge for me because I don't know the answer yet either. But they and I, but I keep asking questions and I find out enough about them that I'll be able to figure the answer out. So you, if you have a, a client that is coming to you with a grand idea and they want to talk it through, how does that even begin? Like I, I the, so I'm asking you a question that I kind of already know the answer to because I remember that after I had the experience of the parking garage, I was like, "Oh my God, Anne, we have got to do this, even if we don't build what we had talked about." The experience of having somebody show you what your space looks like is profound, and so I know what it is. But when somebody says, "Hey, I want to do something different with my space." What what because I think most people when they think of an architect or hiring an architect is a little bit like being like I'm going to go hire a a manager of a rock band like I, I don't know anything like what that would be like yes yes people people don't know what to expect so I, I try to keep it really low key and just just ask questions like well so uh, so you want to do a new house well why well why why are you doing a new house as opposed to where you live now well, is there something about your house that you live in now that you you, you need a new house to fix or 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 what get the answer to that and it just goes right along you know just oh yeah well uh when you're at your house what do you like to do what do you spend most of your time doing do you do you just 
just tell me what you do. I said, well, you know, everybody's got a different story. They come home, I like to exercise, I, I, I sit and read the paper, I, I uh, you know, there's all, there's all kinds of things. I like to, in, uh, our family plays games or cards and whatever, I don't know. There's just, so it's a matter of listening to those, what those things are that people do, and then realizing what kind of a space they need in order to do it. And whether there's spaces, and then and you can also find out things that overlap. Sometimes, I, I think a lot of homes, everybody says, well, this is the dining room. That's just where you eat, right? This is the living room. That's just where you sit and this is the bedroom where you go to sleep. But, you know, like a kid's bedroom, it's more than just a bedroom. It's their whole world, you know. It's their, they study in there, they... And, and they've made furniture that accommodates that kind of thing, right? you got bunk beds with a little desk underneath. I love those kind of things, you know, those kind of spaces. It's like space within a space. That Those are fun. I, I look, I, I'm always looking for that, too. Yeah, I was always looking through the catalog and, and the Sears thing, and you'd see, like, the race car with the shelves underneath it. Yeah, you just yeah, dream yeah. and dream and dream of it. Think, oh, that'd be great. Middle child of seven doesn't get the race car yeah. uh, bunk bed. Yeah, but or even a room. You <laughs> definitely got the bunk bed to share yeah, with your I brother. When I, was, when I was young, I had shared a room with my brother. I had a brother and a sister. So the two boys had it, we, and we had a three-bedroom house. So the two boys stayed in one bedroom, and the sister stayed in the other bedroom, and and it was okay, but I, I wanted, you know, I got a little older, I wanted a room of my own. And so we moved to St. Louis. We used to live in Kansas City. We moved to St. Louis, and we rented a little house up in Ferguson, actually. And I made a room in the basement out of moving boxes. The moving boxes had come. They got the clothes, you know, those boxes that are pretty big with clothes. that are rag and clothes. Mm-hmm. So I, I took those. We got all the clothes out. I took them, took them in the basement and built a room for myself it was dark down there it was in the bay but i didn't care i at least i had a space of my own and your family accepted that you the... they, they said you'd rather live in the basement than with your brother in your in, in up, upstairs i said yes and so my brother didn't care because he got a real nice room <laughs> <laughs> he wasn't complaining but he, so it was fine with him and then we moved out to uh creve core and uh, my parents got a, a five-bedroom house, so we all had a bedroom and one extra one, so that was nice. And so, what but it was, was a really bland house. It was it was not a good house. It was very straightforward. It looked like a monopoly house. It was a the two-story house with a pitched roof, front and back, gables on the end, two two-car garage on the one end of the house. You can imagine they look like them. It looks like millions of houses. And we moved there, and I went in my bedroom. I thought, whoa, this house. It's like they took everything out of it. I looked at the windows instead of trim that go up around the windows and a sill and an apron underneath the underneath the window. There was nothing. It was drywall. Came drywall jam returned into the aluminum window. It had a plastic laminate sill, you know. And I thought, whoa, this place is bland. And that's when I started looking around my neighborhood. Well, all the houses out here are awful. And do you want those things because you want them to be fancy? Like, what is the purpose no, of having I those? I think it's. Uh, it's just to create a little interest. Can you, now, you, you can do that kind of a thing where you don't have trim, but you have to really be careful. It's more effort to do it without the trim than it is with the trim. How could that possibly be true? Well, because you have to do things to fix the problem. with, Like on your door over there, if we just took the trim off, it wouldn't look good. You know, because when they put a door in, they leave a little space on each side of the door and shim it up, you know, so that it gets... But if you don't have that, you have to figure out another way that the opening that the door fits in has to be perfect. 
you have to slip the door in, nail it in place, and the tr there's no trimmer, it's just a line now, just a fine line that goes up and around the door. So it's uh, so you were, got to be, you got, yeah, it's a lot more work. You were talking earlier about the overlapping of, you know, the dining room and the living room and yeah. where the kids will be. And um, and what came to mind is that that uh, phrase, form over function or function equals form. form what are those yeah. phases and what do they mean? Well, that uh, form follows function is, I believe it's attributed to either Frank Lloyd Wright. I believe it's attributed to him, but I'm, I couldn't swear by it. But the idea is that the shape of a building should reflect what's going on inside of it. Now, Seems fair. Uh, somewhat, I think, but I, 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 it, it's not enough to make a mantra out of it. Uh, form follows function in that there's all kinds of forms you could do that would follow the function, right? It's not just one, you know? In other words, so that, does that really say anything? Oh, I'm interesting. Not sure it does, because you could have all kinds countless forms that would all respond to the function and some of them would be really good and some of them would be really bland so i don't know that that's really much of a and when he was saying that he was like if you're going to build a prairie home then you want to build it low and you know integrate it into the well, grasslands he, he was and... one of the first people that started doing things like taking all the uh, walls out of the inside of the house and just have it open you know he said, he said people when they get done dining they just like to hang, you know, they like to walk across the room. Nowadays, people take it for granted. You're, most most people love houses that have the open kitchen and the hearth room and all all connected up or everybody just meanders from one space to another. And, and formal dining rooms, formal living rooms, they, they, they're not as uh, used as much as they used to. I remember I remember uh, when I was in high school, we went to see a Frank Lloyd Wright house oh, up in yeah. Schomburg, I think. Uh -huh, and, uh, yes. and I came home and I announced to my parents that, when I grew up, I was going to have a house with no doors, you know, and yeah, I had yeah. no idea what I was yeah, saying. And yeah. my mother just laughed and yeah, was like, that's because you don't have any idea what you're talking about. <laughs> but uh, you were, but you saw what was going on. That's what attracted you to it, right? You said, wow, you can just go from here to there to there. And the I mean, the, the thing that is interesting that I was kind of pointing out in the beginning is I could go to a room or, or to a building and say, hey, that's neat. But it was such a fleeting concept that I wasn't even aware, I am here in this space, let me soak it all in, right? So yeah. as soon as we started the, the tour at the, in Schomburg, or as soon as we went to the Unitarian Church, my goal is to get from the point where we start to the point where we end and walk through it and be like, okay, saw the neat room, saw the neat room. Like, I, I didn't have an appreciation for it. And it's, it's one of these things that I find... Um, to be really important about why people should get mentors and why people should encounter uh, those strange oddities like the Randall Comforts of the world because I was not naturally drawn to art. I can appreciate it now because I had a mentor that pointed out to me, stand here, look at that, now tell me what do you feel when you mm -hmm. see that. Yes. It had never yeah, crossed my mind that a painting would make you feel something or that you could actually pause for a moment and and it would be almost like what i would now consider meditation and say all right i'm gonna let this wash over me but even having had that experience with art i never converted that to the experience of looking at a building yeah, yeah or being in a building just yeah, how I, does it make I, you feel to sit in this place i've, I've had i've had experience like that too i went to the uh frank lloyd uh Taliesin in wisconsin mm -hmm. frank lloyd home and studio and there was a tour and i went on the tour and I noticed, I was walking around, 
you know, looking at everything, trying to soak it up, you know, and, and say, well, when I walked into this space, I got a certain feeling and I'm trying to figure out why that happened to me. And so I look around and figure out what he was doing to me, that he would, how he achieved what he did. And everybody else, there's a, there's a docent walking around with you and, and reciting interesting things like, you know, the wife was killed here and the fire, <laughs> stuff like that. And everybody else is like up right next to the docent, looking at them and listening to what they have to say. And everyone, and, he, and the docent will point something out. They'll look over and see it and look back. But I'm I'm walking around looking. I can hear and see at the same time. So I hear what the docent's saying, but I'm experiencing the place. I thought these other people are missing the entire experience. They're not experiencing it all. So if they're you, just hearing what the docent's telling, they could be anywhere. So so of course the narrative makes the story. It's actually I think one of the cases that I would make for that would be it is so much easier for a guest to be able to articulate the narrative of we went to the. Frank, Frank Lloyd Wright house where the wife was killed in this spot and it was so interesting as opposed to I sat down and you know in the great room and I felt this thing so if you were leading that tour how would you give people because people go to have I would contend that most people go on experiences not only to have the experience so, but so that they can tell someone about it so how can you help somebody have the experience in such a manner that they could talk about it, or yes, I think in, in the case of the Frank Lloyd Wright House, I, I, I saw some things that I think the, that could be pointed out uh, that they didn't. Like I would have said, like as we enter this room, notice how the ceiling's only like about three or four inches over your head, Hi, and notice how you feel kind of constricted. You feel like, oh, it's kind of that, that ceiling's kind of low. It's about to hit me in the head. And then when you then when you walk into the you walk a few feet further, all of a sudden it gets a lo- it gets higher, but there's windows everywhere too. So all of a sudden you've got this interesting sensation of, wow, I was feeling a little distressed there. Now I feel great. Did you notice that? Anybody see that? And then people say, oh, oh yeah, or, or I didn't know. They might try it and say, oh yeah, I see what happened there. That kind of thing. I think they could do more of that. And the, there was another interesting thing there at Taliesin. and there's a wall. It's called the mistake wall. And it's on the back of the house, and it's the stone at the bottom, just kind of like stone built up. And then as it gets up, it starts changing as it goes up. When you get to the top, it looks like the stone on the rest of the building, which is very unusual. So he, he had a certain way he wanted to do that. And, and the docent tells us, he said, well, this is the wall where they started building the building. And Frank Lloyd Wright came out and said, no, you don't understand. You don't, you don't have it. And he told them what else to do. And so they'd leave and, and come back the next day and they'd build some more. He'd say, no, you still don't have it. And he would keep this up until they did get it. And he told Esther, I think, wow, that's pretty impressive because he didn't point it out, but I thought, look at that. All of a sudden, we've got a, a, a little bit of history here, a story embedded in stone, you know? If, now, most people, if you just looked at it, they think, hmm, they didn't do as good a job on the bottom as they did on the top. Oh, well, walk on. But when you hear that story, it's like a story that, that will last forever. That, that story's going to oh, be Oh, it's almost forever. like a volcano coming in and, and uh, petrifying everything here. Yeah, yeah. And then petrifying and freezing in mm-hmm. time there. And you can actually... So you've got a little time capsule there. It'll last forever. Absolutely. That story, yeah. that story will all be there as long as the building will be there. You know, that, that aspect of it. So this is one of those great things that I actually really enjoy about talking with you. And sometimes it takes a little while to warm up the gears, but it is the experience of walking past buildings that we've walked past a hundred times and then having you say, wait a second, look at this. Did you notice this? Did you ever (laughs) notice this? And so um, 
it's one thing for you to notice it, but it's a whole nother thing for you to notice that you are noticing it, right? Like, so, and, and not to be metaphysical about this, but right, you, you have to be aware enough or conscious enough to be able to grab onto the fact that you are seeing and observing and experiencing something that makes you feel. Yes, you have to walk around with a mindset that you're, uh, you're curious. You're curious about the world around you and you start seeing it, right? And when you see things, you start making connections. You, you start noticing patterns. Patterns are really important, you know? I don't mean just like, is it a plaid or is it striped? I mean, uh, there's a, there might be a repetition going on of some sort, but maybe it's not uniform. And when you start looking, you say, well, that's a, that's, a, that's a logarithmic progression that they decided to use here instead of a linear one. You know, and you think, hmm, that's interesting. Those kind of things interest me. Now, most people, I don't think they, they, might, not, they might not care, you know. What would you say are some of the, the most interesting patterns that are hidden in front of people that you wouldn't, you wouldn't even normally? Or where, where are the places that maybe you see the most patterns that are regular? Well, it, it can occur anywhere, anytime. You, you, you just don't know. There's, uh, I, I see it once in a while. I, I, I see things like that walking along, like looking at a... The other day I was walking along and I noticed that there was a... A grate, uh, uh, a steel grate in the sidewalk, and I looked at it, and when and I noticed that when you walk this way, the sun shone through it a certain way and cast a shadow on the other. But then when you walked over here, it cast a different kind of shadow, and they were both really interesting shadows. So I got, you know, you just, it just kind of fills you up with this with this sense of happiness or satisfaction. Well, I, mean, I can remember one time uh, you showed me it was when we were very early in our, our friendship I was over at your studio and uh, you pulled out all these drawings of uh, transom or or whatever no, like a gazebo not not that um, where you it's creating shade but it's just oh yeah what do you call yeah, that? A trellis a trellis or, uh, yeah and yeah. I thought what a waste of of a, of a space because there's no roof there so if you're yeah. sitting outside and it rains. You get wet. Everybody gets wet. Get it's wet. like, what do you want this for? And then you were pointing out about the shadow and about yes. how this essentially acts, all of these beams act like um, uh, a sundial, right? And depending mm -hmm. on where the sun is, the shadows are going to change. change. And that during the different seasons of the year, the shadow will change where Longer it's located. And, shorter, yeah. and even still, I found that to be like, ah, that's really boring. So what? Until... <laughs> I started noticing the um, on my own porch that I could come home at, after work every day at the same time, and the shadow that my porch was projecting was different, ever so slightly ever every so day, slightly. and that was a like a bang moment of there really are all yeah. of these patterns and how much of architecture is integrated into nature that, that yes. in order for it to yeah. be really that, good the, the best architecture is tightly integrated into nature but you're right architecture it isn't just form follows function it isn't just about the function it's about the fact that a building is tethered to the earth and has to be there and its relationship with the way it sits with the earth some some buildings are they just kind of gradually turn from nature into a building that's a pretty cool other buildings starkly contrast with the landscape that's pretty cool too. It just depends on the design, but it's going to relate one way or another. Most buildings are are just they don't relate very well at all. They're just kind of planted there. In fact, a lot of buildings, and you notice when you drive around, you, you see the same style of house on the north side of the street and on the south side of the street. 
Well, that house is going to work much better on one side or the other because the sun only shines on the south side. So the house with the, with the entrance on the north side, to me, it's a little better off because the sun's shining on your front of your house and it's shining in your front rooms and that kind of thing. The house on the south side, the, uh, the, when you open the door, you'll never see the sun. You know, you're always going outside where there's a shadow. And that's an important thing because, and it changes during the year too, you know. The, the, the sun is low in the horizon in the winter, but, but dead overhead in the summer. So, you know, I'm thinking about you describing all of the, you know, the, the various variables that are going into it. And this is just one, right? The sun, where one, it is, yeah, and, and just, the that's, seasons. That's and, what makes architecture so cool. There's well, so many variables. That's what I was going to ask. Oh, so, okay. so as you come up with, let's say you've sat down, you've spoken with the people, you've even watched them cook some meals or, or had them kind of mm-hmm. play mm-hmm. out the way they like to spend their Saturday afternoons. Um when you come up with the design, is it you? It happens in a flash, or do you? Are you sketching, no, or how does no. this? Work? Yeah, I'm sketching. But if somebody were to look at the sketches I do, they say, "Well, that just looks like gibberish." You know, it doesn't look like anything. I'll, I'll sketch things, and and I'm just really using the drawing as a placeholder to keep track of a few things that are going on in my mind. You know, like there could be a a drawing that has overlays of structure, shadows, form, function. All of those things all wrapped up into a little sketch, and 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 then I'll, and I'll, but the thing that decides how it all comes together is the function. It has to be the function has to work, right? So even though I might think of a really interesting form, if I can't shoehorn the function into it, then it's not a good form, right? And so what I have to do is quickly go through iterations, really quickly. I'm, I consider thousands of options, not in detail. I, I look at one and say. Well, that's not going to work because the structure, will, the, the spacing of the columns will be too far. That's not going to work. That's not going to work. And I even find things that, and after you discard the things that don't work and you start zeroing on the things that do work, it gets to be a smaller and smaller group until you get down to a point you might have 90% of it figured out, but something's not quite working. I, I don't care. I'll discard the whole thing if I have to, to make Oh, man. That to is... get rid of the last thing that doesn't work. Whereas a lot of architects... I noticed it in school when I was in school and professors told me this. They said, that's a good thing that you do is don't, don't settle for it. Just move on. But if people, sometimes people get latched on to something. They really like it a lot. They really like it and they just won't. They fell in love with at, some part at of a certain it. Point, and, and, and they keep working it and working it and working it until it becomes a mediocre design because part of it doesn't work. The part you like might work great, but the other part doesn't. Whereas I figure, like sometimes people, I'll do a design for a client excuse me, and it will uh, be determined that it costs too much. They say, oh, we're going to have to change some stuff. And I always tell them, well, don't worry about that. Oh, great. It's, it, every time we design it, it's just a new design. Just discard the other one. The next one might even be better than the other one, than the, the one we just discarded. And, and it's true. A lot of times I, I say, well, I hate to discard this design. It's 90% of the way there, and it's really cool. But that has but to be... A, and I'll a, go to the next one. Nine deep, times out deep. of ten... The one that come up with after at the final is is better than the one that I thought was so great and discarded. That has to be a deep, deep part of your personality, though, because I, I to to I don't know, but the 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 concept of sunk costs, right, is one that is so difficult for most people to be able to to get past to say. But I liked that idea. I don't want to give it up, or you know, I they I do. I spent all that time do. writing that chapter, and I knew that that's what I Sometimes wanted to do. That happens. People have a hard time letting go they do and have you always been like that just no no problem i mean because i definitely know as we've 
you know, spent time many, many hours over the years. Uh, you never really hold too hard, tight to an argument or too hard to a point no, of view. No, I think to... I'm pretty flexible. I, I like, and I like that. I, it feels good to me. I, I, to me, if I'm zeroing on something, it's, it's kind of a flaw. It's kind of like a Marcus Aurelius thing, you know. You just don't, when something doesn't work, you just don't worry about it. You just get rid of it. You don't sit around and, and you know, be all upset and... If you're, if you're, can you imagine the people that, that were in school trying to finesse that last 10% and they just couldn't do it? Think of the stress they're going through, you know, trying to make it work, trying to make it work. What I'm saying, eh, get rid of it. Let's just keep, let's just move on, do something else. Okay, so, you know, you've got the elements of nature and you've got how people are hanging out on Saturday night or where they want to drink their tea. But what else? What, what? Well, there, you know, there, there's structure. A lot of times, structure can make a meaningful design. I think I, I showed you a photograph of a building that's down in uh, northwestern Arkansas. It's a, a Wayfarer's Chapel, and it's it's just oh a, out in the woods. Just, yeah, out in the woods. It's glass and wood frame. So so the the wood frame is just it's just a magnificent. Uh, it it was voted well, uh, probably the, by a layman that it was the best example of American architecture that there is. It was the favorite that people had ever seen. So that can be an important thing. But the most important thing, or the best thing, and it hardly ever happens, but when it does, it makes architecture really great. And that is when there's some meaning to the design. You brought up the example of the uh, garage in Clayton that moves. And what makes that so great is that it's, it's a public sculpture, but it's a public sculpture. It's like the architects gave a gift to nature, not a gift, but an opportunity. They, they gave them basically like, like an instrument. And nature plays the instrument for the benefit of us <laughs> as observers. We don't hear it. It's not like a musical. You don't hear it. But we, they gave them this building with the little silver discs on it that can move. And the wind plays that instrument 24 hours a day. And think, why do people like that? Why would people like the fact that it's moving along and you don't know how it's going to move and it's different? Like if you ever go by that building when there's a, a, a oh, I strong in, wind. I, I intentionally do that. If, if, yeah, there is if there's a, a, really if there's a storm, I go it. see it. It's yeah. great then, isn't it? Yeah. And so, uh, but it's similar to thing, and that's why people gravitate, I think, to nature. You think, well, why do people like that kind of thing? And it's because it's natural. They, they know that nature is making it do that. It's nobody, it's, it's just happening without anybody controlling it. It's sort of like, it's similar to looking up at the sky and watching the clouds. You know, they come by and they're all different, and they, but it's fun to do, right? I think, I, I think you'd have a hard time finding a person that doesn't like laying in the grass and looking up at the clouds. You know? So tell me about that. So is that is that only does meaning only get created when you're interacting with uh, the environment? Or? No, no. Let me let me give you another example. There's a there's a there's an architect, uh, a Danish architect, Bjark Ingels, that got the commission to do a power plant in Copenhagen, and the and the assignment was that we're going to take make a building that the trash trucks come, dump the trash, we process the trash turn into energy and release steam only. It's the cleanest power plant in Europe. And so there was an RFP for uh, architects to respond to, to that, to building form. Now, obviously, the most, uh, the, you'd think a utilitarian type of building, that it'd just be a big box with, with a smokestack that comes out the side or the top or whatever. But Bjarke Ingels came up with the idea. He said, you know, we get a lot of snow in, in, Copenhagen, in uh, Denmark, but we don't have any mountains. So people can't go skiing. They have to go across the 
over to Sweden to go to go skiing. So he proposed, take the plower pant building, instead of it being a big box, you take it out so it has a high end and a low end, and you turn it into a ski resort. It was that big. And so the way that building works is you, you go and you can go to up an elevator and you can go skiing down the side of the building until you get to the bottom. <laughs> so he's got two things for one, and there's an important thing. There's a meaningful thing. And the other thing he did with it, it just so that everybody would know that it, that they're power is being processed in a clean way or it's or it's they they did a thing where the smokestack the smoke the, the steam that comes out instead of just coming out they save the steam and when there's when they've processed one ton of trash into energy it emits a smoke ring that comes out the top so everybody goes oh we just made another ton of tra uh, ton of energy uh, you know got rid of a ton of trash and made made oh, x, wow. x amount of energy you think, now that's pretty cool don't you think to have a building that can do that it's not just a building that sits there and has a function. It's a building that speaks to other other things. Have you had clients that uh, didn't know that you could impart meaning into their into their projects that that ultimately you've you've been able to do it? Uh, yes, yes, I have. I uh, I had a project where a the owner was also a builder, and he uh, they wanted to do a room addition out the side of their house, but there was a big cherry tree out there and they didn't oh want this to is kill, great they yeah. didn't want to kill the cherry tree you know because they really liked it but it got a disease and died so he took it and cut it had it cut down and had a uh, portable uh, sawmill come and saw it into lumber and he dried it and everything and so we took the cherry wood he said i want to take this cherry wood and incorporate it into the design so what i did was you know we took it inside we, we made a fireplace mantle we made trusses we made we made cabinets for his kids to keep their uh, toys in and and stuff like that so now the the building has a certain re meaning for them you know they, they're, their cherry tree still there it's not alive anymore but it's still there preserved and maybe for longer than for, it would have been preserved yeah. forever you know and it sits on the same place that the cherry tree was you know so they really like that when I, when I explained that to them they, they thought oh that is so cool and so, how how often does that come along? Is that is not that, that often? It's hard to it's hard to bring that into the equation. You know, there has to be something important in people's lives for one thing. So the other thing that you have to deal with is the the materials that are available. Yes. And um, you know, I've been to your studio and I see that you have an enormous amount of reading material and things yeah, that are going. How how in the world do you keep up with? the materials and technology and things that are coming out and, and available well there are uh online like architectural record is a periodical that used to be a mag what well, still is but they have an online presence too and there's there's a lot of periodicals like that and and trades the trades publish things like the glass manufacturers publish things that say oh look now we can make curved glass that's 40 store you know 40 feet high we only used to be able to do it 10 feet high well you think well that's to keep in mind because you know you might want to you might want to use that so that's how i keep track of the, the latest materials and and manufacturers and uh, technical representatives are are, are getting get in touch and want to you know come by and show you the latest products and so things like that. one of my uh the way that you and I met was that we were at uh, a Toastmasters yeah. group. And um, I think Toastmasters is one of the great clubs that anybody can join it, it because is. you go to an event and every single person there 
is there only because they want to get better at speaking in some way in communicating and nobody shows up for any other reason i mean you you could have other reasons ancillary to that but your primary one one. the the one and so it's almost like having an aa club uh like where you you don't have to give up drinking alcohol to join it so it it's it's an interesting thing and you and i met there and and we struck up a conversation um which is something that i'm kind of natural naturally pulled to do but if you were to say, I noticed that about you. That's why. That, that, yeah, it seems like he's pretty, pretty good guy to know. But the the thought that I have when you meet somebody like you as an architect uh, who's um, eloquent and thinks a lot about this stuff is, what question do you wish people that didn't know an architect, if they ran into you, what is the best question that they could ask you to strike up a conversation where, and not just you, any architect. What is the thing that you can ask an architect that's just going to make them light up and just jibber jabber jibber jabber talk, um, so that so that the so that the inquirer doesn't have to do any heavy lifting. All they got to do is get that one question in. Well, I think a lot of architects like the uh, question posed to them. Well, what's your what is it that when you, when you do architecture, what is it about you? What is your is it your what is your style or what is your what 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 do you bring to bear when you when you do architecture? Well, what what is it that uh, what was it that makes you want to be an architect and and the things that go on in your head that you bring out in your architecture? What is it? What is your style? I don't have one. Yeah, that's what I was gonna say. I uh, I don't. Uh, I, my my focus is always on what the client wants and what the opportunities are that exist and and. And I like to bring those together. I don't have any preconceived ideas. Like, you know, some architects, there's a style to them. Like, uh, well, I can think of some examples. But their buildings have all have a similarity to them, you know. I, yeah, I mean, you can that. tell I'd, a Frank Lloyd Wright. Well, to some degree. Yeah, he did quite a bit of different things, too. But uh, there was an era in uh, architecture called postmodernism. I know you've heard, heard that. It was, I think, in the 80s around then. And there was a there was a, an architect who was a champion of that, and all, and everything he did, you could tell it was him when you saw when you saw a building. A building, you didn't even have to look at the credits. To What's know a that. postmodernist building? Well, that's where they took there. You know, originally, there was classic classism, classical buildings that you know f- that lasted all the way through early about the twenties, and then modern modernism came about, which was a radical departure from classism, which. Is, uh, buildings were arranged along a certain predefined kind of thing called Beaux Arts uh, design, and the modernists came along and said, "No, we don't want any. We don't want any trim. We were talking earlier about trim and and uh, decorative aspects to it. We don't want any of that. We want. Uh, we just want plain. We we want glass and materials. That's it. You know." And so that was pretty popular for a long time. And the, the trouble with the, the, and the very the very best examples of that are really really good. But it's like with any style, a lot of architects come along and try to try to replicate it, and then it gets watered down and gets gets pretty bad. So would this be what you think of when you think of like the Great Gatsby style of architecture? Would that be modernist? Uh, no, no. The Great Gatsby. It was during that time it started coming out. But the Great Gatsby. Look at the if you see the movie or go to the house. Uh, it, it's traditional. Okay. It's a traditional house. But uh, I'm trying to think. There's a there's a building here in St. Louis. It's a modern building. Uh, uh, the one right across the street from the post office on the west side. There's no a building idea. Here. Never even noticed that. Never even noticed. Well, right now they're they're going to build a big development there. They're going to take over that whole block and build a huge development. And there's an outcry about. 
having that have that building be torn down because it's uh, one of the one of the few true modern buildings in in St. Louis. But postmodernism, they came along and said, "No, that modernism is too bland. There's nothing going on." It's uh, there was a famous uh, famous architect. Uh, they came up with the saying for modernism. Uh, Mies van der Rohe said, "Less is more." Yeah. You okay. Heard that yeah. Saying, right? Well, there was another uh, postmodern architect that came along and said, "Less is a bore." That was his credo. And then uh, architects started doing things where they would take the classical elements and they would transform them into forms that were sort of a almost a caricature of of the original buildings. And but they were pretty interesting. Some of the the best ones did some really interesting things. I was fond of it when it was. Occurring. So what would you describe? But it didn't last long. It only lasted about twenty years, and then people said, "No, no," because it's like any style. The very best practitioners, things look really good, but then everybody says, "Oh, I like that. That's the latest style." And then all architects start doing it. Then it gets watered down, and, and let's face it, not all architects are as good as others. Same with any field, right? But the bad architects or the ones that aren't as good. They start doing things that are kind of iffy and not so good, and kind of, and so people start turning against that style because they see it everywhere and they say that's postmodernism. I hate that. Whereas if they saw the true example, they'd say, "Whoa, this is there's something to this." So if somebody wanted to get uh, like an entry level, just I want to understand architecture. I want to see it through the. I want to see buildings through the eyes. Where, where would they begin? Should they start trying to follow people on Instagram? Should they go on YouTube? Should That's they a buy a question. book? Uh, there are probably books about it, but I don't know. I don't know. I've never seen one, but there probably are books like that. Um, you use Instagram, don't you? Yes. yes do. So what do you use it for? I just, I like to uh, show off things that have the basis for a thought, you know, like show off interesting things that uh, I did one the other day. I don't do them very often, but I was doing a project where we where we were going to take out a floor to put a stair and kind of an atrium in, and we thought it was in a house, residential, so we thought it was wood, and it turns out the floor was, well, we started looking at the base, and the electrician was going, well, I don't think I'm going to get my wiring up there. Look, there's a hole here, but there, there's no, it's solid in there. And so I just look and say, oh my gosh, this is bad. When we take this out, it's going to be expensive to tear this out now. But uh, then we started looking a little closer, and we drilled up in there, and it turns out that they were made out of hollow clay tiles. I know you're familiar with those. But the way they used to make this was they would, they would the, the garage walls are poured, right? They, they set up a set of formwork, Plywood on top. Guys are walking around. They're taking these these clay blocks and lining them up in rows, leaving about three inches in between. Okay, and then they put some re, two rebars in between each one of those and set them on a little piece of wood or not wood, but they probably use a little piece of block or something. And then they pour concrete over all of it, so it goes down in between the in between these clay blocks and on top. So that it forms a structural slab, but it doesn't weigh much because it has most a lot of it's air. Wow! But the places that go down in between, it makes little beams. So there's these little beams, but it seems like a solid slab. So we we cut through that with a saw, a concrete saw, and dropped the part we didn't want. I took a picture of that and explained this in a. In an oh, that's a hell of a use of Instagram. Because I thought people might find that interesting. Oh yeah, yeah. Because it looks pretty wild the way they cut through the floor like this, you know. And, so I thought, oh, that's pretty interesting. Somebody might find that interesting. And what is your Instagram uh, handle? I don't even know. 
It's comfort architecture. I just publish stuff. I don't even know what it is to tell you the truth. It's got to, I, th- I think it's comfort architecture. It's got to be. Yeah. I, I'll yeah, look you, it up and throw it on the on the video. Yeah, you, uh, you follow me, right? I'm sure, but I don't I use Instagram that much because I'm I'm not as visual, I don't use right? It. Yeah, that's what it's good for. It's. I mean, I think that I'm. I've gone through and seen all your stuff. I, I mean, like I it's. I wish I had time to do more. I see things. And I think, oh, I'd like to publish it. Yeah, I mean, that's kind of where you spot your patterns and put them on there. It is. Yeah. Well, so as we wrap up, um, I I'd be interested in hearing. What is the field of study that is not yours, but that you've encountered over the last I don't know few years that you've said. I'm glad I encountered that because it helped me think about my work in a different way. Hmm, that's a good, that's a good, quite interesting question. Let me think. I, I think probably it would be computer science. I think I found that the approach that computer, computer people, people that are knowledgeable about computers, the approach they take is really attractive to me. It's similar to the way I think. And I, and I've talked to some, people in computer about that and we agreed in fact in computer now uh, computer science there's even a job called architect in the field of computer science. of data architect yeah so when you anymore if you say i'm an architect to a young person they may not associate the fact that you're an architect for buildings necessarily and so what in what way did did uh computer science have any impact i mean those seem like your field i mean aside from cad drawings and things like that but but how well it's an approach it's the approach to solving problems that's similar and, and I think it's interesting. In fact, I took a little computer science when I was in school, but it hadn't been developed very far, and so there wasn't a whole lot you could do. But I found it really interesting the way that if you figure out how to tell this machine specifically what you want to do, it'll do it. And you have to find the way. You have to understand what it needs in order to get the, the response that you want. And, and you have to be able to do it in an eloquent way. I, you know, I hear people say, well, you can take this, and if you use that program, then it'll just take this one thing that you were doing that was taking quite a while and do it a whole lot more efficiently. Those kind of things really intrigue me. Efficiency, uh, things like that. Well, I can tell you that the that learning about architecture had a profound impact on me and really in a lot of the ways that I give speeches. And I remember the the there was a there was a time when you pointed something out to me in pop culture that um, probably anybody listening would find interesting, but it made an impact on me for how I spoke, which was um, pointing out the various styles of thrones in the Game of Thrones. Oh, yes. And the experience that people would have communicating with the king or queen in those various uh, Mm -hmm. scenarios. Yeah. I like that. Yeah, I like that. That's that's an intriguing thought. Like I remember that conversation too, because the way the thrones were situated in the room in relation to the rest of the room and the people that were coming up to it makes a big difference. Like like when, when you encounter someone at your level, it's one thing, but if they're sitting up, but if you have to walk up a set of steps to get to the plate where they're sitting on this big chair, that's a whole other thing. They have sort of a command over you that that you can't help but feel, you know? And that was that was what was intriguing. I thought about those spaces. And for me, I took that lesson and I applied it directly to what is it to go up on a stage? You know, why is it that, um, you know, having a vaulted uh, room, even in a room where, you know, you could be in a room of 200 people and it'd be a very big difference if you're on the floor with everybody else versus being up 
two feet versus being up five or ten feet, right? Yeah, it's a yeah. very, very, very different um, experience. I imagine it would. I've never had that experience, but I know you have. And so I would think you would have a certain a feeling of command when you're up higher, that you're in control of what's going on. I don't think it's quite that simple. It isn't it? I, I think, I think, um, I think that that would be the perception, right? That would be the... It seemed to be. Yeah, but you are also held up there and there's nowhere to go. And it's very clear that you're not an equal that just happens to have the microphone. You got called up there. So, yes. so the it's yeah. I, I you know I often make the comparison of public speaking to surfing, and if you go up on a stage, just like up on a throne, you are getting on a much bigger wave, and yeah. you have got to know uh, what you're doing because the expectations of the people out there is that you are going to say something that's worth their time. If you're up on this big stage and you say something boring, man, that's all the more reason for people to really, really despise that you're up there wasting Mm -hmm. their time. Mm -hmm. And, um, so anyway, I could go on and on about this, but this is, uh, one of um, many conversations I hope we'll have, and I'm very grateful that you uh, stopped by tonight. Well, thank man. you for inviting me. It's a pleasure. Thanks. It's fun.